This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Misinformation campaigns have been on the rise partly due to the turn towards right-wing extremism in many parts of the world. Social media has created new ways to spread misinformation and propaganda, making education a powerful tool to combat the spread of lies and what we might call fake news. So if you don't know what to believe, if you can't agree that this is a microphone, you know, someone can just say, this is a pin. No, it's a microphone. It's a microphone. And then someone says, you know, somebody says a million times, this is a pin. That's what becomes true. Yes. I've always known information is power. Information is power. And states used to have that power. But now they're not the ones in charge of this. And this is part of the reason, like, when we think about solutions to this world, short, medium, long term. Long term is education. Medium term is media literacy. But in the short term, you can't even rely on legislation because you look at how, like, watching the congressional hearings with Mark Zuckerberg, I was like, oh my God. My guest today is Maria Reza, a Filipino American journalist and author. Co-founder of the online news site Rappler, she has been an investigative reporter in Southeast Asia for CNN and was included in the 2018 Times Person of the Year for her work combating fake news. She has been arrested for her reporting on Duterte, the Philippine president, and is currently on trial for cyber libel. Maria Reza, welcome to Fresh Head. Thanks for having me. So as a journalist, how does it feel to be the news today rather than reporting it? I uh, extremely uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, I, I know that this is a completely different time. And all of our old definitions have to get trashed. And we are creating what our new world is going to look like, not just of journalism, but of democracy, of information, uh, which is the critical part of democracy. I think it's an existential crisis that we're in right now. And I say this all the time, when journalists are under attack, we're the, f- we're the front lines on that battle for facts. And when journalists are under attack, democracy is under attack. So how does it feel to be? I don't like it. At the same time, I see so much because of where I am right now. Right? The fact that I'm a reporter who used to follow terrorist networks, that we took that same kind of rigor to look at social networks and social media. And then the business model of Rappler was turning what I, my last book is called From Bin Laden to Facebook. And I was looking at how the ideology of terrorism spreads through social networks, right? What's social media? It's your family and friends. It's your social networks without boundaries of time or yeah. space, right? So I, we took that. And then uh, the ideas behind Rappler is really if the bad guys can use this to spread evil, why can't the good guys? And so if when I was building Rappler and talking to my elevator pitch for investor, one sentence, we build communities of action, right? right? And the food that we feed the communities is journalism. So it's journalism, your Venn diagram, journalism, technology, community. And that's what made Rappler different. Um, there were four or five of us above 40 when we started it. And then I knew enough to know I didn't know enough that (laughs) we needed digital natives to tell us what the new world is going to look like. So then we hired 
the smartest 20-somethings we could find. It started with 12 people. In a year and a half, we grew to 75 and became the third top online news site in the Philippines. You know, wow. we were able to fight the giants, one of which I used to manage, and I know how much they spent, right, with a fraction of the cost. And I think that, right there, you can see, right, what happened in, um, well, what did uh, Uber, you know, this, the disruption in each of these businesses ultimately became a disruption in information, a disruption mm -hmm. in governance, a disruption in global geopolitical power. And that's what we're living through right now. And you are experiencing it. I mean, firsthand, like no one else in the world is probably experiencing that's it. That's why it's, it's so much fun as the, at the same time that it's so, so, so alarming. We yeah. raised the red flags early, right? Early 20, I think it was, we had data by July of 2016, which was not coincidentally the start of this brutal drug war in the Philippines. Yeah. The way social media had been weaponized, we saw it in the data. And we gave that to Facebook. Um, because I run the business, I could see how the advertising model is dead and how, ironically, the same social media platforms that are being used to attack the credibility of journalists that are used to, to attack personally mm -hmm. in very visceral ways women journalists, right? How that same platform is also gutting the business model that 85 to 90% of the advertising new digital ad spend is going to the tech giants. So it's a perfect storm of a lot of things. But, you know, I first looked at it as uh, a, somebody who is running a news group who wants journalism to succeed. And then by doing our work as reporters, we found the disinformation networks and realized how insidious these information operations are that governments are using a scorched earth policy against their own citizens. Their target is to manipulate their citizens for short-term gain. And, you know, this coincides with the kind of spread of populism turned authoritarianism turned movement towards dictatorship that we are seeing globally. Right. Not just in the Philippines, but in so many other places, I mean, uh, in European countries, in American countries, in North American countries. And the, the studies are out, right? As early yeah. as uh, November 2017, Freedom House came out with a study that said in at least 28 countries around the world, cheap armies on social media was rolling back democracy. In 2018, Oxford University's Computational Propaganda Research Project uh, added 20, 48 countries. Mm. And, you know, we keep looking at this. Um, but... The irony, of course, is that you can't tell it because each of our, if each of our feeds are individualized, are right. personalized, then I don't see your attacks or how wonderful your feed may be. I see mine. Right. And so in a way, for reporters under attack, it's like a silent screen, you know, mm. because, and I had to struggle with that when I started getting 90 hate messages per hour. Oh, my God. I... That was after we finished our first propaganda series. I wrote two of the three parts in that. Um, Is that when you knew something was terribly wrong? I knew it was wrong because the data showed it to me when, when we became the target. I half expected it mm -hmm. but didn't know what it would be really like until I was there. And, the, and here's the part. That's also part of a much bigger thing, right? This kind of exponential lies so they astroturf it fake right so yeah. they astroturf it creating a bandwagon effect right 
That is like the fertilizer before real power, our government, then comes top down. So this is bottom up, astroturf, seed the ground, and then the government will come down and say the exact same thing. It's truth. Yeah. In our case, um, the weaponization of social media, their main their main message was, you know, foreign owned, Maria is not a Filipino, um, and then everything. I've been called every animal, oh. I've been called every sexist or misogynistic remark. I mean, I should actually, they're pretty garbagey. I mean, it's all crap, right? Yeah. But anyway, so, and then those, the same attack then came out of President Duterte's mouth a year and a half later at his State of the Nation address. Wow. That Rappler is not. One, it's it's 100% owned by Americans, actually, is what he said, which isn't true. Right. But, you but know, it, it made it from this social media world of fake news, as we might call it, to the president of right. the Philippines. So what we, we called this, in um, August of 2017, we were working with 12 other researchers from around the world to look at this. And the term that was coined by, by our head researcher then is patriotic trolling. Camille Francois, hmm, right. uh, patriotic trolling is online state-sponsored hate that is meant to, to pound you to silence, to silence, and it and it targets but perceived critics. Because at mm. that point, I, I wouldn't have called Rappler a critic. What we were doing is calling a spade a spade. But, you know, as I had firsthand experience of how power is abused, I call a spade a spade, and I suppose given the fear that's happening where people don't call it and where I am because I feel it personally, I see it personally, I get arrested and, and denied bail because they just want me to feel their power. So I right. acknowledge that, but then I call them out. You abused your power. And I will, as long as my constitutional rights are there, are guaranteed, then I will continue doing that. How, you know, in, in the Philippine society, in in the, the space where you're writing and reporting, how can we or how can you create a space where there can be facts mm. that we might all agree on, but different interpretation of those facts, different perspectives on those facts? Sure. Because that's not fake news in a way. Yep. Right. Yep. There's there's a slight difference between the making, you know, something unfactual yeah. presented as a fact yeah, yeah, and yeah. a different way of understanding a fact. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom. Fighter, exactly. Right? Yeah. Oh, glass half empty, half full. This right. is valid, right? That can happen when algorithms are not pushing you to extremist views and creating echo chambers, yeah. right? Some academics will say echo chambers don't exist. I know firsthand. I watched this created in the Philippines. I watched the rift pounded and... Um, half lies laced with anger and hate really create a chasm and then the echo chambers are there how do we do how, how do we correct it? it right now the social media platforms so number one is we have to design tech for democracy right uh, i'm part of several international groups trying to figure this out there's a design for democracy coalition uh, largely based, I mean, the founders were in the States, but it looks at what's happening in other parts of the world. I'm part of, uh, the, I'm part of the Information and Democracy Commission, 28 of us, sorry, 25 of us from 18 different countries. This is an initiative mm -hmm. by uh, the co-chairs are Nobel laureate Shirin Abadi, the Iranian yeah. Nobel laureate, and then uh, 
uh, RSFs, Reporters Without Borders, um, the Secretary General there, and then so many more, right? Mm. The idea there is that the solution can't be done by one. Right. Because governments and old power, that's the last part, which I think is a good first step. And I think our, we just published this yesterday, July 10th and 11th, Britain and Canada finally uh, pulled governments together mm. to defend media freedom to say that when human rights violations happen, that they shouldn't stay silent, that there should be a, a quick reaction team that will go, right? Like when Canada, Christian Freeland, a former journalist, talked, uh, tweeted in support of a blogger in Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah. And then Saudi Arabia pushed back and no one helped, not one nation. I mean, you would have expected the U.S. in the past to have done that, but not one nation came in. How can we not uh, be clear about our values? Right. right? I and mean, it's, there's, there's, you know, there's certainly a problem of state power when it comes to propaganda and misinformation. But it also seems like, since you're talking about algorithms in social media, that there is an equal challenge of the concentration of power in particular companies that own the spaces of social media, like Twitter or like Facebook. So right how, now, they are more powerful than governments. Exactly. Right? And yeah. let me let me um, explain that statement. I think that never before in the world have has one company, Facebook. If you put together, it's the Facebook and WhatsApp. They pull together 2.7 billion accounts. Never before has you know have these kind of verticals per country. Because before media was only for each country, and then maybe you would have like a CNN or something that would right. cut across. Well, now this cuts across, right? And the kind of when a lie pops up in one country, like Hungary against George Soros, it pops up everywhere, and the networks actually work together. Mm. The alt-right in Europe are working with the alt-right in Canada, are working with the alt-right in the United States. I mean, very interesting stuff, and the connections between those and Russian disinformation in the Philippines right now. We're just starting to look at what China is doing because, mm. again, in the past, right, China and Russia had very different approaches. So this is the old world way of looking at the world. China would censor, right? And then they began doing um, social media right. accounts. As of 2016, um, this is Wall Street Journal's number, uh, they were pumping out 450 million social media messages, but they were like really boring, like the great leader type boring stuff. Russia, on the other hand, was pounding the fracture lines of society and was crippling institutions. So if you don't know what to believe, if you can't agree that this is a microphone, you know, someone can just say, this is a pin. No, it's a microphone. It's a microphone. And then someone says, you know, somebody says a million times, this is a pin. Right. That's what becomes True. Yes. Right. I mean, it's it that's really the environment is about that truth. we live in yeah. right now, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if anything, more than at any other time, I've always known information is power. Information is power, and states used to have that power, but now they're not the ones in charge of this. And this is part of the reason, like, when we think about solutions to this world, short, medium, long term. Long term is education. Medium term is media literacy. But in the short term. But you can't even rely on legislation because you look at how, you know, like watching 
the congressional hearings with Mark Zuckerberg. I was like, oh my God. But, but well, yeah, I mean, it's because it's these old white men who have, you know, they don't know anything about Facebook and Twitter. And they're the ones asking questions and trying to regulate this, you know, massive yes. industry. I mean, that's, it's, it is, it's sort of like farcical when I watch it. So I will say Canada and Britain are a little bit better. Yeah. I I did I, was, I testified in one of the hearings that they had, and I was surprised by the complexity oh, yeah. of the questions. And, and, you know, they had reading that they made everyone. I mean, it's 14 nations and the MPs of 14 nations in that. Anyway, but back to the short term. In the short term, the only people who can act to make things better right now are the social media platforms. Right. That's... And that's all in their power. So I'm a partner of Facebook, Rappler's a partner of Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, yeah. Google. Um, and, you know, what we can see is, you know, we're both, a, we're one of three fact-checking partners in the Philippines. Huh. When we find a lie, we then look at the network that spreads the lies. And that's more interesting. So what do you me. find? Repeat. Then I treat them like terrorist networks. Right, repeat, and you you kind of like have your Interpol watch list, and then you have the terrorists, and then this is Facebook has done takedowns already, right? Mm -hmm. So, what's so interesting about this is, until the world figures out how to deal with this, when you talk about creative destruction, right? And again, like the robber barons, then began to do something about what they that they took advantage of mm -hmm. people. Uh, in this, and then they went ahead and funded all of the education that mm. needed to happen, and they made up for it, right? Well, right now, the only groups that can act are the tech people, and so mm. how do we get that? They keep saying, you know, tell us what to do. Well, yeah, okay. Even something like content moderation, yeah. the kinds of prescriptive, they've atomized meaning to meaninglessness, right? What do you mean? So in the past, the value of a news piece is in its insight and what it would give. The value of a news group is the value of the brand that's built over decades mm -hmm. of great investigative reporting. Now the value of a piece is page views. And it's not about meaning. It's about page views. It's click, clickbait or whatever they call and it. And clickbait does not reward thinking slow right it rewards thinking fast or daniel kahneman's book on right. the two systems of thinking right. for a human being which means we've moved away from even the way of rewarding money before rewarding advertising before a news group would build its credibility and it would be based on this you right. can charge based on that now it's based on on clicks on something that is tech and again, you go back to this entire system that was created by people who atomized the world. Who says that that's the best way mm. of doing it, right? And how can you how can you say that this one story is not worth 800 of these clickbait stories, right? How can only the tech guys got to do that? And yeah. uh, for me, I say atomizing meaning because in the end, these clicks are meaningless unless... I think that's what journalists do. That's what educators do. We look for meaning. We look for purpose. And right. brand is built that way. Right. So speaking as a founder, <laughs> how do you reward courage, for example? Right. You don't. Not in this right. system. Right. right. And sorry. The last thing on content moderation. Why don't they use, instead of making it up themselves and making it so that they can 
make the most money or make it the easiest for content moderators? Why not include use as a backbone? The, this is David Kay, the UN Special Rapporteur of Freedom of Expression, suggested using the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Huh, interesting. That's interesting to me yeah. because there's at least some standards and ethics in right, that, right? right? That's what's what's been missing in the way tech built this exponentially virulent world, right? Right, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. To, they've rewarded Until it's all crap. gone because it destroys it all. Right. <laughs> Creates destruction again. <laughs> but impunity, right? right. The With, people yeah. who figure it out. With like, billions, actually. Right. You know, it's impunity plus a lot of money. Uh, I think last year, $40 billion yeah, for, exactly. for Facebook. Anyway. One of the things that really fascinates me, in, I mean, so... From, you're from the Philippines, yeah. you're, you're experiencing terrible oppression from the state itself. And when you look around Southeast Asia, this is not that uncommon, right? right? You look at Hun Sen in Cambodia, it's or we're, we're, we're in Thailand now, and they just, just a couple, what, a, month, a year ago, they changed to a civilian government after many years of military rule because of a progressive leader was, was elected by, by the rural poor in, right. in Thailand. Or you look at Myanmar or Burma, where you know the Rohingya have been persecuted because of social media in many ways, or through social media right. as well, by um, the military. By right. the military, is, right? And so, that that's and, and Aung San Suu Kyi, who was you know had so much hope in sort of the the liberal world, and then she has shifted over. And so this illiberalism in Southeast Asia, you know, it makes me wonder why. Why are we like in this part of the world where we're sitting today? Are you know middle classes? Being the most illiberal groups of people in these societies, like how did how did that come about? Why is Southeast Asia unique in a way in yeah, this yeah. in this sense? Well, I th I think you know for I'll boil it to two reasons. One is Southeast Asia was never at the forefront of democracy to begin with, mm. right? The Association of Southeast Asian Nations. I was there when it moved when it included Laos, Myanmar, and Cambodia, and Hun Sen was already the leader. That was like yeah. in the eighties, eighty seven, and then you know. Yeah. We are countries that have, you know, the cultural barometer, the high power distance index. The power distance index is, you know, the the ability of someone to challenge a leader, mm -hmm. to challenge somebody with with power in the system. And in our countries, it's very like in in Indonesia, orang uh, kecil, little people. In the Philippines, mass base are mass based little people as well, right? They're different phrases. The idea that uh, there's still, in, during Suharto's days, Pakubowono, uh, the nail that holds the universe in place, that there, that Suharto was actually right. unquestionable, right? Mm. Same in Cambodia. In That's Hunsen, right. right. So these are countries where this high power distance index is in our culture. Yeah. Um, I took over the largest news group in the Philippines, and I was like, you got to tell me what you really think. And it was really hard to get people to tell you what they really think if yeah. you're the boss, right? right? Um, it's it's more Western. So I think there's that uh, where um, people want, and this is part of the reason why this movement towards more populist authoritarian-style leaders is easy and easier in our mm, countries. Yeah. They want someone to tell them what to do. Right. It's feudalism, right? Mm. Patronage-driven feudalism That's in right. so many ways. Yeah. Um, so there's that foundation. But then the other part of it is Facebook has taken a huge toll in our countries because you already have governments that have power and unfortunately now have used social media in ways 
to gain more power in a scorched earth policy. Right. We've seen this in Myanmar, and that's been called out globally, and now mm -hmm. the UN is acting on it. Same thing is happening in the Philippines, mm -hmm. uh, where this brutal drug war seeds a climate of fear. And you know, you're talking, according to the UN, uh, their estimates say from July 2016 until December last year, at least 27,000 people killed. The Philippine police admitted to 6,600. This is like much more than <laughs> were killed in the 21 years of the Marcos. Right, exactly. Rule, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's that. There's the climate of fear in the real world and the climate of fear in the virtual world. There is the inciting to hate, inciting against elites, shaming, smart shaming. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, in the case of Myanmar, uh, a jump from 3% internet penetration to 72% internet right. penetration when when they came in and no sense that you know you that your lie on social media is actually a lie there's not that there wasn't any yeah, media right. literacy because it came from a censored environment and it came really quickly right once the cell phone became cheap and everyone had them and all of a sudden everyone's on facebook on their cell phones because it the was country. it was free facebook right exactly, it was yeah. uh, free basics right. was put in the country, same in the Philippines, same in Indonesia. Right, exactly. Yeah. So these are, so not only, I, I think our countries didn't have the sophistication, but at the same time we embraced, I embraced Facebook because right. I was like, okay, well, if you could give me a better way of doing it than the old way, can we build institutions bottom up? Right. Not knowing that, you know, that was 2012 and we did do that. I saw it and it happened with Rapper. We built communities of action for disasters, yeah. for climate change and because we have an average of 20 typhoons every year. And we had, you know, we were able to, at different times, send 70,000 volunteers to the right. Department of Social Welfare and Development when a typhoon strikes. We were able to build a platform where people can see who needs help and create a system of hashtags. If right. you need help, hashtag rescue PH, right? So who would have thought from that in 2013 to the patriotic trolling of 2016? Right. That's only three right. years. And now That's a three-year gap. I know. I mean, it, it moves so quickly. I mean, one of the things I've been following lately is in Cambodia, for instance, Hun Sen is creating these sort of institutes to combat fake news. And so he's sort of using some of these ideas of disinformation and changing them so changing it furthers his own power, Correct. right? I mean, right. It, and it sort of is like it just blows your mind how quick the state is able to adapt to these new ideas and issues that you're fighting for, but then using it to literally undermine your very goal. So Hun Sen is interesting because that's there, there is a dictator's playbook. Mm. They do get together. Yeah. They talk to each other. They like each other, mm. right? Duterte likes, and I'm going to include Trump, <laughs> Duterte likes Putin. Yeah. In APEC, right, Duterte likes Trump. We've, I watched them both. I was in Vietnam during the APEC meeting summit um, a few years ago and then in, during the ASEAN meeting. But I think Cambodia is a much, much clearer. Yeah, it's sort of pure. Go to <laughs> something like Singapore yeah. and the fake news law there. Exactly. Right? And, you know, look at the way the West looks at Singapore versus the way Southeast Asia looks at Singapore. And I, I'll say I'm conflicted mm. because I've covered Singapore for CNN starting with the caning of Michael Fay. You know, starting when when Go Chok Tong took over. I mean, I 
literally, I began my career in 1986 with people power in the Philippines. And through my career, I watched and was reporting on how every single country in Southeast Asia, my part of Southeast Asia, didn't include Cambodia because it's been there forever, but uh, <laughs> and Brunei, yeah. um, they moved from authoritarian one-man rule to democracy. Yeah, you know, 1998, the fall of Suharto. I mean, I did the first interview with Habibi coming out. So it was an incredible time, and I would hate to see the pendulum begin to swing back. back. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing, and the accelerant is social media. Well, Maria Reza, thank you so much for coming and talking and joining me with Fresh Heads. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Maria Reza is a journalist and author. She is also co-founder of Rappler. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with Education International. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. FreshEd's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.